excellent, like, um, like was just mentioned a moment ago by DJ and Colin. We're so glad you're able to be here this morning, especially if you are a guest in the room or if you're watching online right now and it's your first time connecting on live stream. I want to just extend a very, very special welcome to you. And, uh, you know, I just want to say, I don't, as uh, DJ and Colin were just talking, I um, was just thinking about how awesome it is uh, that this summer that we have a chance to do camps and conferences and to do retreats like we do. I don't know if I've ever been more thankful for that, especially after this past year of social distancing and this past year of not being in person to be able to return to some of those things. I just don't know if I've ever been more thankful uh, for an opportunity to do that and for an opportunity for us to be together uh, like we are here today. So that's awesome. Uh, but like I said, we are in week two. We're in the second week of this series that's called Broken Religion. And so if you are just tuning in, welcome to the conversation. Uh, but just to kind of catch you up to speed, if you, been, if you missed last week, uh, last week, Pastor Seth did an awesome job of kind of introducing us uh, to this whole concept and this whole conversation. Basically, in the series, what we're doing is we're actually talking a little bit about, about religion. And what we're saying is that uh, a lot of people would look at Jesus, and they would look at his teaching, and they would say that Jesus is another kind of religious teacher, that basically Christianity is just another religion among many religions. And we said, but if you look at Jesus's teaching, and you look at it very carefully, we said Jesus' teaching is so radical, and Jesus's teaching is so utterly different, that it utterly smashes, and it breaks apart our preconceived notions of what religion really is. And so uh, last week, like we said, Pastor Seth kind of took us through, did an awesome job in the introduction. And basically he said, for many of us, when we think about religion, what we tend to think of is we tend to think of rules. That's what we usually think of. We tend to think of what are the rules and regulations that I need to put into my life to earn God's favor? What are the rules and regulations that I need to pursue in my life to be made right with God? We said, that's what a lot of religions would look at. And yet when you look at Jesus's teaching and you look at what what he says, we said it is so radically, it so radically breaks apart many of our conceptions of what we think religion truly is. Uh, if you missed last week, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that. I think it lays a very important groundwork for the entire conversation. But uh, I actually want to just go back to where we left off last week and kind of pick it up. So if you got your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open that up with me yet again. We're going to return to Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so if you got a Bible uh, or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and open that or turn that on. And if you want to get to Matthew chapter 5, that'd be awesome. If you did not bring a Bible with you and you want to use one of ours, uh, under the chairs, page 786 is where you're going to find Matthew chapter 5. And so if you don't have a Bible, use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. Okay, we'd love for you to have a copy of the Bible and read that on your own. And so as you're turning there, uh, here's where we left off last week. So we looked at some very powerful words from Jesus, but quite honestly, some kind of haunting words from Jesus. And here's what he said. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to do away with the rules. Don't think that I have come to abolish the rules. He says, I haven't. He says, I've actually come to fulfill them. And then Jesus goes on to say the second thing, which quite honestly is a little bit haunting. And Jesus says this, he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses or goes beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Last week, we talked about that. We said the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were like the religious elites. They were like the professional do-gooders. No one was more religious than them. And Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
And so if you missed last week, you're going to want to go back and check that out. But Jesus is going to take this thought now, this thought right here, and he's going to press that into six very practical examples. He's going to give us six case studies. And what he's going to do is he's going to talk about how this applies specifically to anger. And then he's going to talk about adultery and sexuality. And then he's going to talk about divorce and marriage and remarriage. And then he's going to talk about oaths and the things that we say. And then he's going to talk about revenge. And then he's going to talk about enemies. And so I want you to understand that this right here is is a little bit of a picture of, of all that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come for this series. So this is kind of an outline of the weeks to come. So as you can see, we have a very pleasant and a very encouraging summer on tap. For those of us here at the Medina campus. So it's just going to be a great summer of encouragement. And uh, that's what we're going to do. But today what we're going to do is we're actually going to start at the very top. And we're going to dig into Jesus's teaching on the topic of anger. So we're going to be talking a little bit about anger and more specifically what Jesus has to say as it relates to anger. Now, before we start jumping into these verses, and we're going to pick it apart together, I want to just give you a little bit of a fair warning here before we get started. Uh, It probably goes without saying, but my guess is some of you probably can already pick up on this, that this is one of those topics and this is one of those teachings that for many of us hits us right where we live. And, uh, and I happen to know that I think that there's probably many of us in this room, if not all of us, who are just going to see that this applies directly to some of the things that we're going through in our relationships right now, even as we talk. And so I just want to kind of forewarn you, just kind of get you ready. This is going to be what I call sometimes, I call it kind of a squirmy sermon. Right, so this is going to be a squirm. So turn, turn to the person next to you and say, squirmy sermon. All right, just go ahead and tell them that. You're going to squirm a little bit. For some of us, we're going to squirm. And I'm just going to tell you, I know that because, because I, I have squirmed quite a bit in preparing for this message. Um, this is one of those topics that I personally, is one that just really hits me personally. Uh, anger has, has, been a, uh, has been a struggle point for me for a very, very long time. And so I want you to understand that I'm not just coming to you as someone who's presenting this teaching this morning. I'm actually coming to you as someone who is sitting underneath this teaching, and I need it. I need it desperately. And so having said all of that, all right, let's just go ahead and dig in, and we will pick this thing apart. So starting off in verse 21, here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said, to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And so let's pause there real quick. So here's what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, Jesus is referring to the teaching that would have been most commonly accepted and the teaching that would have been most popular to his first century Jewish audience. And what was that teaching? Well, he says, first off, you shall not Murder. Now, what is that? Okay, so this is a verbatim quotation from the Old Testament. Now, some of you might know this. This is actually number six in the infamous Ten Commandments. It is a direct verbatim quotation from places in the Bible like Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, which says, you shall not murder. Now, the second part, he says, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. You're actually not going to find that in the Old Testament verbatim. But what that's referring to is it's referring to the Old Testament's teaching. And so what the Old Testament taught, for example, in places like Exodus 21, was that if someone murdered another person, that they were subject to judgment. That if you murdered somebody, that you were subject to the court of law. And there was a penalty for that crime that was committed. All right? So we all get it, right? Don't murder. If you kill people, then you're probably going to go to jail. There's a penalty. You are subject to the court of law. Sounds very simple. Sounds very simple. But here's the thing. 
I think the simplicity of this commandment, I think all of us understand this, I think the simplicity of this commandment actually reveals in some ways the problem with the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So here was the problem. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would interpret this law on a surface level. And they would simply view this law on a behavioral, on a behavioral kind, of, uh, kind of perspective. And so basically they would say, if you want to fulfill the law, basically you just have to answer the question, did you kill anybody? Did you kill somebody today? Yes or no? So let me ask you guys real quick. Did you kill anybody today? Yes or no? No, okay, good. Well, some of you are like, well, it's not quite noon yet. You know, I've got a whole, got a whole day ahead of me here and those kind of things. But you see, this is, what the, this is what the religious leaders would teach. They would say, well, if you answer no, then you can check it off the box. You can check the box off. And what that means is that you have both kept and you have fulfilled the law as long as you don't kill anybody. That's what they would say. Now, Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to say, not so fast, not so fast. And so Jesus is going to come in, and he's going to say, but I tell you, but I tell you. This might be a good spot for me real quick just to mention to you, in all six case studies that we're going to look at over these next weeks, there's a common theme, and there's a common pattern. And you'll see it. Like, you can even look at it right now if you look at your Bible. Each, each one of these topics, Jesus is going to say, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. So this is really Jesus' take on religion in many different ways. And I think that this statement, when he says, but I tell you, I think this is an incredible statement of the authority of Jesus Christ. I just want you to think about that for, for a minute. Jesus just said, you guys know what the Old Testament says? You know what the Pharisees say? You know what the teachers of the law say? But I say, that's a pretty powerful statement about the authority of Jesus Christ. And so what does Jesus say? He says, but I say anyone who is angry, anyone who's even angry with a brother or sister, with another person, is going to be subject to judgment. Some famous words, but man, some challenging words. Some of us are thinking, okay, all right. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Because the face value is, it seems as if what Jesus is saying is that if you are angry with another person, that you are just as guilty as if you murdered another person. So is that, is that, what, is that what Jesus is actually saying? Because that seems pretty radical. That seems pretty radical. Now, I think here a couple observations are probably in order. So let me give you a couple observations from when I studied this passage that I thought were, were very clarifying. So I'll just kind of share two with you. Here, here's the first, first observation. When Jesus says the word angry... Uh, it's actually a really interesting word he uses. So some of you know the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, there was actually two words that were used for anger. So the first word was this word right here. It was the word thumos, not to be confused with Thanos, who is also very angry most of the time. Uh, but thumos, it, it means uh, flare-up anger. Okay, so this is like flash anger. This is, that, this is that wave of emotion that hits you when you feel angry and it flares up quickly and then it subsides afterwards momentarily. That's the kind of anger. Now, I just want to tell you that that is not the word that Jesus uses here. That's not it. He's not talking about thumos. What's he talking about? Well, the word that he uses is actually orgizo, and it means anger as a state of mind. That's how this is interpreted. And so the idea is this is the kind of anger, you can think about it this way, this is when you brood over something in your anger. This is um, replaying the offense and the hurt 
over and over and over again in your mind's eye and in your imagination. This is the mindset that says, I am choosing to be angry and I am refusing to leave that place. I'm choosing to stay in a position of anger. Although the way one commentator puts it, his name is Dave Bruner. Uh, he said it this way. So the Greek word that's used for anger is a present tense participle. You don't need to remember that. But then he says, but it can be translated is being angry, is carrying anger, or is remaining angry. And so the anger of which Jesus speaks then is an anger that is intentionally carried around. Okay, so this is the idea of nursing a grudge. This is the idea of I am choosing to stay in a place of anger. So here's the point. We all get angry at different times. And I don't think Jesus is saying that it's wrong to get angry. Because anger is, an, uh, is, to not get angry would be to be inhuman. It's a natural human emotion. I think what Jesus is talking about here, though, is he's talking about choosing anger. He's talking about sitting in anger. I think he's talking about refusing to leave the place of anger. I think he's talking about holding on to resentment, clinging on to bitterness, refusing to release forgiveness to another person. I think that's what he has in view. Now, the second observation I want you to notice is Jesus says anyone who is angry is going to be subject to judgment. All right, now, if you're anything like me, when I first read this, I had this thought, and maybe you had this thought, I thought, okay, so the Bible says if you're angry, you might be, you're going to be subject to judgment. But then my next thought was, well, hold on a minute now. Didn't Jesus get angry? Like, don't I remember, like, reading in the New Testament? Doesn't the Bible tell us that Jesus got mad sometimes? Like, in fact, don't I remember, don't you guys remember a time when Jesus got real mad and he overturned tables and he even made a whip and he, like, chased people out of the temple? Like, it seemed like he was probably pretty mad then, right? Or uh, I thought about, like, isn't God angry? Like, have you read your Old Testament? Seems like God's pretty mad sometimes. And, uh, and here, here, here's, here's my response to that. If that's where your mind goes, is was Jesus angry? Was God angry? Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely correct on that. The Bible does not shy away from the fact that God and that Jesus were angry. In fact, we did a series uh, several weeks ago called God Is. And one of the things that God declared about himself is he said that he was slow to what? Anger. He didn't say, I'm void of anger. He said, I'm slow to anger. And so God is angry. And so because Jesus himself was a person who became angry, that tells us that not all anger can be sin because Jesus himself was without sin. Well, that begs a really important question then. How do I know the difference between emotional anger, just normal emotional anger, good anger, and sinful anger? How do I know the difference between those two things? Well, here, here might be a clarifying way to think about this, all right? So maybe this is helpful. I want you to think about this with me for a second. All right, let me ask you this question. What exactly is anger? I just want you to think about that. If I asked you to define anger, how would you define that? How would you define it? It's an interesting question. I think all of us would agree anger is an emotion, so we all understand. It's a natural human emotion. But I would actually argue, and I'm not the only one, by the way. There's several others that would argue this. I actually would argue that anger is, psychologists would put it this way, it's a secondary emotion, which means that it's attached to something else. And I believe this. I believe that anger is directly connected to your affections, that anger is directly connected to that which you love. If I could give a definition, this is just my definition of anger. I think that anger is a negative and destructive energy or a negative and destructive emotion that is directed against anything that threatens what you love. I guess what it is. It's a negative, it's a destructive emotion, it's a negative destructive energy that's directed towards that which threatens what you love. 
Uh, I actually thought this was really great. Some of you might remember about a year ago, we did a series called Emotions here at Grace Church. And uh, Dan Miller preached an awesome sermon on anger. And he actually gave us this very, very complex and exhaustive diagram on anger. Can I show it to you? It's kind of complicated, but here it is. He gave us this. And uh, very complicated, very exhaustive. But here, here's what I thought this was really helpful. He said, he said this. He said, your anger is directly connected to that which you love. And so when something threatens or harms what you love, it is going to activate your anger because those two things are connected. So a really simple example would be this. Here's a positive example. Um, I, one thing I love very much is I love my wife, right? So I, I love my wife. And because I love my wife, not in spite of my love for my wife, because of my love for my wife, there are certain things that would make me angry, right? So let's say that you were threatening to harm or to hurt my wife. Well, that would activate my sense of anger, and I would want to do whatever I could to stop you and to help her. Now, why is that? You might be saying, well, I thought you were a loving person. Well, I am a loving person, and the reason that I'm angry is not because I'm not a loving person. It's precisely because I'm a loving person. So if you threaten what I love, it's going to activate my sense of anger. Anger and love are activated together. They go together. Here's a negative example, a negative example. Let's say that um, a colleague or a friend or a coworker of mine or something like that, let's say that they were being celebrated for something and I wasn't. Or let's say that they were being successful in something that I wanted to be successful in, but I wasn't. And let's say that my first response was that I got mad. I got angry about it. Now, what's that telling me? Well, if you follow the anger, you're going to find it's attached to something that I love. What's, what's happening? Something that I love is being threatened. And what's being threatened? Well, honestly, my pride, my ego, maybe my desire to be recognized by other people, those kind of things. So you can see not all anger is created equal. Some of it is positive and some is negative. Now, here's what I think is really fascinating. Did you know that when you read in the New Testament, I love this so much about the Bible, the Bible doesn't just tell us that Jesus got angry. Do you know it tells us why he got angry? It's interesting. Let me give you a couple examples. This is not an exhaustive list, but you'll notice in the Bible, Jesus' anger was directed towards, for example, it was directed towards death, and it was directed towards pain, and the pain that it caused all people. Uh, John chapter 11 is a great example of this. Jesus' buddy Lazarus died, and when that happened, Jesus saw all the torment that it was causing his family, And the Bible says his response was that he was deeply moved and he was filled with compassion. And the word there for deeply moved literally means he was infuriated. Jesus was infuriated with death. He was infuriated with the pain that it caused people. The Bible's gonna tell us that Jesus was, uh, his anger was directed towards that which obstructed people from interacting with God. That that account I told you about when Jesus was overturning tables in Matthew 21, do you know the reason that Jesus was so angry? Well, the Bible tells us it wasn't just because people were selling stuff. The reason he was upset is because that was a place that was dedicated to prayer. That was a place where people were to interact with God, and it was being obstructed. And so because of that, Jesus was angry about it. Uh, Jesus was angry, we're told, towards legalistic systems that found fault with healing people. Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3, and the Pharisees and the religious teachers got all honked off about it, and Jesus was upset with them. He was angry about it. And then Jesus was angry another occasion. He was angry with his disciples when they pushed little kids aside. You guys remember that? Little kids were trying to come to Jesus and they were like, keep the kids away. And Jesus is like, no, let them come to me. And he was mad about that, the Bible tells us. Now, can I tell you what's even more interesting? I think this is really fascinating. The Bible doesn't just tell us the things that Jesus got mad at. 
But what's even more interesting to me is sometimes the things that Jesus didn't get angry about. I couldn't find one example in the Bible for, for just for instance, where Jesus got angry about injustices that were done towards him. Never see that. You read the crucifixion account, and what do you see happen? Jesus is arrested, he's falsely accused, he's beaten and mocked and spat upon, and then he's tortured. And the whole time he's being tortured, they're criticizing and mocking him. And yet the Bible tells us, interestingly, Jesus is never angry. He's filled with compassion. He prays, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus' disciples abandon him. They leave him. All of them do. And then after Jesus is right, raises from the dead, do you know what the first thing he says to his disciples when he sees them is? Not what I would have said. Right? When Jesus sees them, you know what he doesn't? He doesn't say, guys, uh, where were you? He doesn't say that. That's what I would have said. He doesn't say, um, you guys owe me, like, big time. You all left me, and I died for your sins. So someone's rubbing my feet, right? Like, I would do that. Do you know what Jesus' first words to his disciples were? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. I'm just saying it's amazing to me what Jesus didn't get mad about. Do you notice a common theme about Jesus' anger? Do you notice it? What is it that Jesus got the most mad about? It was that which threatened, notice, people. People. Why was he mad about that? Because he loved something. What did he love? He loved people. And he loved God. And whether it was a legalistic system or whether it was a sin or whether it was some kind of structure that was obstructing people, that's what made Jesus angry. And can can I just tell you this? I don't know about you, but my anger is not like that most of the time. I'll be honest with you, most of the time that I get mad, my anger is directed towards those who are acting and who have wronged me. That tends to be my anger. I love the way D.A. Carson put it. D.A. Carson is a, uh, com- wrote an amazing uh, book and commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. I thought, he, I thought he nailed it. This is what he said. He said, let's admit it. <clears throat> By and large, we're, we're quick to be angry when we're personally affronted and offended. And then we're slow to be angry when sin and injustice multiply in other areas. In these cases, we're more prone to philosophize, which I think he's absolutely right about that. And he says this, in fact, the problem's even more complicated than that. Sometimes we get involved in a legitimate issue and we discern, perhaps even with accuracy, the right and the wrong of the matter. He says, but when we react with anger, we may deceive ourselves into thinking we are defending the truth and the right when deep down we are more concerned with defending ourselves. I think he's right about that. I can see that in myself. And I think this is actually starting to expose the difference between natural uh, anger as an emotion and sin-infected anger and the difference between those things. See, the problem is not, there's not a problem when you burn with anger and when you're frustrated and when you, when you find yourself infuriated with sin and with injustice and with brokenness. That's not the problem. The problem is when you find yourself in hatred and infuriated with people, towards people who God really, really loves. And I tell you, I think that, I think that part of that is not just evidenced in Jesus's life, but I think it's also evidenced in what he says next. Because look what Jesus says next in his uh, uh, piece about anger. Oh, I was going to mention this real quick too. I think for those of us who follow Jesus, and um, I, by the way, I know not everyone who, who's in this room follows Jesus. Some of you are still kind of investigating Christ. But I think for those of us who follow Jesus, I think that part of the evidence that we are becoming more like Christ is that we are growing in both our love and our anger. 
that we are growing in our love for people and we are growing in our anger towards sin, that which harms people. I think that's one of the clearest evidences that we are becoming more like Jesus, is that yes, our love is growing, but our anger is also growing at the same time. But it's love towards people and it's anger towards sin. I think sometimes what happens though is without the transforming power of Jesus Christ is we tend to grow in our anger towards people and our love for sin. I think Jesus wants to change that. It's like it says in 1 John chapter three. 1 John says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Anyone who hates, not anyone who hates sin, not anyone who hates injustice, anyone who hates a brother or sister, he says, is a murderer. So Jesus goes on. Here's the next thing he says. He says again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. All right, so what's Jesus talking about here? Okay, so Jesus now talks about anger, and now he begins to apply it in what we say about and what we say to other people. And he gives us two examples, and I think these are interesting. Notice he says, anyone who says raka and anyone who says you fool. Now, this is really fascinating to me. So this one, you fool, I think that one makes sense to all of us. I think we all get that, right? That's an insult. That's what that's talking about. It's about devaluing someone. It's about insulting them. The word for you fool in the Greek is the word moros. So can you guess which word we get from that? Which word do we get? Tell me. Moron, right? Uh, idiot, uh, you know, dummy, uh, a-hole, whatever you decide to call somebody. We all get insults. We, I don't need to educate you on that. We got that. But I'll tell you what I thought was interesting is actually this one right here, raka. This is very fascinating to me. So the word raka in Aramaic, it actually was an expression that literally meant empty. It meant empty. And so it's this idea of calling someone worthless is sort of the idea behind it. Literally, this would be the same as calling somebody a non-person. You're a non-person. Now, this is interesting to me because I, I know for me, when I get mad at somebody, my inclination is to say, you fool, or you moron, or you idiot, or whatever rendition you want to use. But I never am tempted to say, you non-person. Like, I've never done that. Have you guys ever done that when you're in a fight? Like, non-person. Have you ever done that? I've never done that. So what's Jesus talking about here? Here's what I'm convinced. I believe that here, Jesus is talking about insults. But I think here, he's talking about something else. What's he talking about? You guys ready for this? I think he's talking about indifference. I think that's what he's talking about. You're empty. You're a non-person to me. Now this is, I'll be honest with you guys, this is where it gets a little scary. Because I think, I think that what Jesus is saying is that if you purposefully avoid, if you deliberately neglect, if you look through somebody, if you don't care to see them or to see any value in them, if they're on that side of the room I'm gonna pretend like they don't exist and I'm gonna be on this side of the room. I think Jesus says, if that's, if that's what's in your heart, then you're guilty of breaking this commandment. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Now, I know that's difficult, but can I tell you, I think that what Jesus is getting at here, I think this is an absolutely brilliant commentary on human nature. Because I think what Jesus is saying is, you have heard that it was said that you shouldn't murder. And Jesus is saying, and that's good. I haven't come to abolish that. That's actually a really good rule. You shouldn't kill people. Jesus is pro not killing, all right? But I think Jesus would say, but that's not enough. It's not enough. Because we all know that murder is not an insulated and isolated event. Murder is the fruit of something else. It grows from somewhere. And where does it grow from? I think Jesus is gonna say this in Matthew chapter 15. He says, for out of the heart, 
come evil thoughts, come murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Jesus is going to say, in the same way that an acorn, a little tiny acorn, has within it the DNA and has within it the potential that if it's put in the right environment and it's germinated, that it has the potential to be an entire oak tree. I think Jesus says in the same way, indifference in your heart, anger towards another person, bitterness towards another individual has the potential that when germinated, it can sprout roots of bitterness and grow into a tree of resentment and bear fruit in your life of gossip and slander and hatred and even murder in the right environments. I think this is what Jesus is pointing out. And I think what he's saying is that the DNA, the DNA of of this commandment runs very, very deep. Because I think all of us know this. It is possible to kill somebody without killing them physically. There's a lot of ways you can kill. You can kill a person's reputation. You can kill a person's character, character assassination. By the things you say, by your nonverbals and what you communicate to another person. You can kill a person's confidence by insulting them or by purposefully and deliberately finding fault in the things that you do. I think we can all do this. And I think the reason that this topic maybe hits so close to home is because it really just, it really hits us in so many different areas. I mean, doesn't this speak directly to, for example, how we interact on social media? Doesn't this speak right to that? Doesn't that speak to those of us who follow Jesus and the things that we say and the things that we post and the things that we share Doesn't it speak to that? Even the people we don't know personally about political figures or about sports figures, about actors and actresses who are real people who are made in the image of God. It says something about that. I think this speaks to gossip for sure. Deliberately saying things verbally or non-verbally to try to cause other people to view another person negatively. It speaks to that. Scott Sauls maybe gave my favorite quote on uh, gossip. I've used it before, but I just think it's so powerful. He said this. He said, gossip is like pornography of the mouth. Like porn, it seeks a cheap thrill at someone else's expense with zero commitment to them. Oof. That's true. It's serious. Does this not speak directly to the cancel culture that we find ourselves in? Is that, is that not cancel culture? You've made a mistake or a perceived mistake, and that means that you are worthless to society. Raka. That's what that is. Does this not speak directly to, dare I say it, dare I, road rage? (laughs) And you guys, if you guys have been coming to Menina campus, you know this one hits so close to home for me. My wife and I joke around. I have have two emotions that I'm aware of, Uh, anger and not anger. That's it. Those are like the two I know. And, uh, and for some reason, when I'm behind the wheel of a car, it's the worst. If you've ever driven around me and I wasn't aware, I'm sorry already. I'm not sure what I did, but it probably wasn't good. And I just, I don't know, it just seems like whenever I'm behind the wheel of a car, it's anger multiplies for me. Let me just ask you guys. All right, so this is church. It's a safe place. We can confess and be honest with you. How many of you share in my struggle here? How many of you guys are like, yeah, me too? Okay, all right. You're my people. I love you guys. The struggle's real. I get it. And some of you didn't raise your hand because you're like, that's not a struggle of mine. And I thought maybe, can I just read the definition of road rage? I think you might change your answer. So this is the, this is the official definition. It comes from Wikipedia, which is the most reliable source on the internet. So this Road rage is aggressive or angry behavior exhibited by motorists. These behaviors might include rude and verbal insults. You fool. Raka. Because I'm sure that's what you say. Physical threats. 
or dangerous driving methods targeted towards another driver in an effort to intimidate, why are you driving so close to their bumper, and release frustration. Right, now let me ask you, how many of you would change your answer and say, yep, I struggle with that? Okay, uh, almost nobody. So we'll talk about lying in a few weeks. We'll get to, we will get to oaths. That's, that's on its way. But I think Jesus is saying it's, this, is, this is what's inside of all of us. He's getting to the heart of the matter. And it's challenging what he's saying, but can I tell you that as challenging as it is, Jesus is gonna go a step further and he's gonna turn it up even a, another notch. And here's what Jesus is gonna say. He's going to say, if you're angry towards a brother or sister, and if you call them you fool or you call them raka, he said, you're going to be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Okay, that's intense. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying there? What is he talking about? Now, let me just say, I've, um, I have often wanted to come back and do a sermon series on hell. There's so much to say about the topic, and there's so many questions, and I think at some point we're going to need to do that. Uh, but let me, let me just say this, for our purposes today, I think what Jesus is saying is this. You have heard that it was said, don't murder. And if you murder, then you are in danger of the court. You are in danger of being arrested. You are in danger of a penalty by the, court, by the earthly court here on this planet. But I think what Jesus is saying is this. But there is a heavenly court and there is an eternal judge to which you ultimately answer to, to which all of us answer to. Now, this is very important because I think part of what Jesus is telling us here, I think one of the, one of the, uh, one of the outplays of this is what he's telling us is that morality, morality is not subjective. Morality is not relative. Now, I just want to tell you that that flies in the face of everything that society teaches us. We live in a society today that teaches us that morality is a cultural construct, In other words, every culture determines morality for themselves. And so we have laws and we have rules here in America, and those are different than laws and rules in Uganda, Africa. And what we'd be taught today is the reason that laws are different in different places is because morality is a cultural construct. Every culture determines morality on their own. But Jesus, this is so powerful, Jesus says, no. He says, no, it's not. He says, morality comes from heaven. And there is an eternal court and there's an eternal judge, and there is, a heavenly, there is a heavenly morality that all humans are held accountable to. And I think what Jesus says here, and I'm not even gonna try to soften his words. I'm not even gonna try to. They're powerful, and they're pointed, and they're strong. And I think what he's telling us, bottom line is this, is that bitterness in our hearts and devaluing of other people and anger that leads to vindication, I think he says those are a very, very, very big deal in the eyes of God. They are. Such a big deal that I think that's why Jesus is going to go on to instruct his disciples, and he's going to say this. He's going to say, therefore, because this is such a big deal, because this is a really, 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 really big deal, he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then and come offer your gift. Now, I want you to notice this. Jesus is telling us that in order to fulfill this commandment, don't murder, he says, it's not enough that you just stop at the negative. You can't just stop with don't kill people, don't say bad things about people, don't be angry with people. He says you actually have to move on to taking positive steps to root out bitterness and to seek uh, relational reconciliation. In fact, I think what Jesus is gonna say is he's gonna say this is such a big deal that you need to go to all-out war with bitterness in your heart. 
You need to go all out war. In fact, I think what Jesus is going to say is he's going to say, you need to go as far as you can. You need to go first and you need to go as fast as you can. You, gotta, you need to take it super, super serious. So let, let me just show you this. Jesus says, you got to go far. So he says, this is so crazy to me. He says, so you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. He says, leave, leave your gift. Go be reconciled, make it right with them and then come back and offer your gift. Now, I'm just gonna tell you, it is really hard for you and I to appreciate the absurdity and the intensity of what Jesus is saying right here. It is really hard for us to appreciate it. So let me see if I can help us kind of get a picture of what Jesus is actually saying. So some of you know this because you've been around our campus for a while. Back in the first century, uh, if you were to make a sacrifice, which was part of the religious practice of the Jewish people, there was only one place you could make a sacrifice. And let me just ask you, does any of you know where that was? It was in, yeah, it was in Jerusalem and it was at the temple. So there was one temple and it was in Jerusalem. And if you wanted to make a sacrifice, you had to go there. Now, some of you know this because you've been with us in the past. When Jesus is teaching the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he is in a very specific location and he is at the Lake of Galilee in Capernaum. Now, does anyone know how far Capernaum is from Jerusalem? So get this, it is 78.6 miles away. All right, so here's what Jesus is saying, just to show you. This is Google Maps. So Google Maps, Capernaum, Lake of Galilee, down here, 78 miles away is Jerusalem. And then I put it on the walking feature instead of the driving feature. Do you know how long of a walk it is? Do you guys see that? 35 hours. So do you see what Jesus just said? Do you see the absurdity? He's talking to people up here and he says, so let's say you go down to Jerusalem to make an offering. You walk 35 miles and you go. And he says, then you're about ready to make the offering. You're just, you're like next in line and you're about to make your offering. And then you remember, oh crap, Bill, we got that thing going on. And Bill's mad at me about that property dispute. He says, you know what you should do? Leave immediately. Well, can I just make my offering first? No. Go, go how far? As far as you need to. You go make it right, and then you come back. What's Jesus saying? Listen, I think, I think here's what he's saying. We're talking about people in the first century. Let me talk to the people in the room and the people who are watching this right now. Listen to me, if you're in a place right now where you are holding on to bitterness, if there is relational brokenness that you're experiencing right now, if if as we've been talking, there have been names that have been scanning through your mind and you know there's an issue that needs to be resolved and it's been left unresolved, I think what Jesus is saying is this, is any attempt to worship God and any attempt to, to become more intimate with God is going to be obstructed until you get that right. So you go far. You go as far as you need to to make it right. So he's gonna say you need to go far. He's gonna say you need to go first. You go first. You go first. I love what he says here. I think this is so brilliant. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift and you remember, notice this, that they have something against you. Not that you have something against them. They have something against you. In other words, you maybe didn't even start it. Maybe you're like, I don't have an issue with them, but I know they got a big problem with me. Jesus says, it's always your responsibility. You should go to war with conflict. So you go, he's gonna say, you, you go far, you go, you go first, and then you go fast. I think this is why he says things like, leave your gift, first go. He's gonna say in the next verse, settle matters quickly. Do it while you're still together. Go, go fast, do it quickly. It reminds me of what it says in Ephesians 4. The apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 says this. He says, uh, don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
and give the devil a foothold. He's gonna say, listen, you need to root out bitterness before it takes a root in your heart. You need to go after this hard. Now, listen, I understand even for some of you, we're talking about this and we're thinking about it and you might be having a person in your mind and you maybe even feel convicted that you need to go talk to them. But maybe there's a bunch of questions that you have. You might be saying, yeah, but like, what if they won't take coffee with me? What if they won't answer the call? What if, what if, what if it goes, what if it gets worse? And, there might, and I understand there's all these nuances to this thing because people are messy. We're just messy. That's how it works. But here's, here's the point, I think. Have you done everything you can, if you're a follower of Jesus, to exhaust every option to be reconciled to that person? I understand not all people are willing to be reconciled. I understand you may have done everything that you can and it's just not going that way and you can't control another person. You just can't do that. But, but the book of Romans tells us in chapter 12, as much as it depends on you, as far as possible, do everything to be at peace with everyone. And like I said, I know there's questions and there might be nuances to this. And for that, I actually would point you to a couple helpful resources if you want to dig into them. We actually did a whole series on conflict resolution that was called Resolve uh, a few years ago, all out of Matthew 18. And if you're someone who's in the thick of this and there's some nuances that you're seeking questions to and answers to, you might want to check that out. There's a book by Ken Sandy called Peacemaker. It's phenomenal, and it just deals with some of the nuances of seeking uh, uh, reconciliation in relationships. And I might encourage that. Talk to a spiritual leader if you need to. Talk, not, don't talk to everybody, but maybe talk to your life group leader. Maybe talk to the person who's discipling you. Seek to get some wisdom on it. But the bottom line is, I think what Jesus is saying is, he says that the root is much deeper than we think. It goes deep. And so because of that, we need to go after it all the way down, all the way down to its root form. I'm asking the band to come up. And as the band kind of settles in, I want to just end our time by, uh, by addressing three things you might be feeling right now, all right? So uh, the reason I think you might be feeling these things is because this is what I've been feeling when I've been reading Jesus's teaching. And maybe you can resonate with these, but here's the first one. The first feeling is this. Um, Jesus' teaching is convicting. Yeah, it's just, there's no other way to put it. This is some hard stuff that Jesus says here. I think for many of us, we can feel the weight of that. And for some of you who are here today, and as you're hearing Jesus's words, maybe there's action that you need to take. Maybe there is. Maybe there's names of people that you can think of, or there's situations in your life that you can think of that there needs to be steps taken. Maybe you need to go far. Maybe you need to go first. Maybe you need to go fast. And so let me just tell you this. If you feel that, if you feel that work in your life, if you feel the spirit working in your life in that way, I just want to tell you that I believe that the power of this message is not found in the conviction that you feel. I think the power of this message is found in the action that you take. And so after the service is done, maybe you need to make a call. Maybe you need to get coffee. Maybe for you, maybe for you, honestly, you've taken actions and you've done all that, but maybe there's attitudes you need to address in your heart. So for some of us, maybe we've just, we've decided to be angry. We just have. We've, we've decided to hold on to bitterness and maybe even today, you need to release that. You need to repent of that. Maybe you're just not willing to change. Maybe for some of you, you can't. You just can't. And if that's the case, can I just encourage you? Would you just, would you just talk to God about that? Would you open up to him? Would you invite him in to release your grip on whatever it is that's holding you captive in your resentment? Here's the second thing that came to my mind. is in the very same way that Jesus' teaching is convicting. I think it, uh, on the same token, Man, Jesus' teaching is beautiful. It, it really is. It is beautiful, what Jesus says here. I mean, can you guys just imagine with me for a minute 
what would it look like if in your family everyone took what we just read seriously? Imagine in your family if everyone decided that they were gonna go after conflict resolution and they were gonna deal with anger in those ways that Jesus just mentioned. It is beautiful, it's beautiful. Imagine if everyone in our world did that. Imagine if our church did that. I think if our church took this stuff seriously, we would stand out in this world because there's nothing else like it. Jesus' teaching is utterly, utterly beautiful. But that leads to the third thing I wanna mention. That's just this. Jesus' teaching is humanly impossible. Like, let's just be honest. We can't do this. We are going to fail at this. And, And my guess is that for some of us, even as I've been teaching, you've been feeling the weight and you have been feeling the exhaustion of trying to live in to what Jesus is saying right here in these words. And can I tell you that if you feel that way, if you find yourself feeling like what Jesus is teaching is humanly impossible, can I just tell you that I believe that you are starting to understand the Sermon on the Mount. I think you're starting to get it. I think you're starting to get the point of what Jesus is teaching. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said it this way. He said, a mirror can can only show you that your face is dirty. He says, but you can't wash your face with a mirror. And I believe in the same way the law, the law can show you that you're sinful, but you you can't cleanse your sin with the law. You can't. The law just points out something that you need. And I believe that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to take us from a place of we think that we're pretty good people right back to we are poor in spirit. And we don't have the resources and we need someone else to do it for us. And like Pastor Seth said last week, the Bible's gonna say that none of us can fulfill the law and that's why Jesus came, because he fulfilled the law. And when we put our hope and our trust in him, He wants to put a new heart inside of us. He wants to grant us the forgiveness of sins and he wants to transform us to be like him more and more and more, not perfectly, but increasingly. I'll end with this quote, powerful quote from Philip Yancey in his great book, The Jesus I Never Knew. He says, thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters, We are all desperate, and that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere else to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. And I think that's it. So we cry out to God, and we rely on his grace to change us and to transform us. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I do just want to say thank you for your words. They are convicting. They are beautiful. They're true, but God, we can't do this. We know we can't. And so uh, thank you that you've given us um, a diagnosis here, but that you in yourself, uh, Jesus, are the answer. And so, Father, we need you. And so we cry out to you. We ask for your grace. We ask for your power to help us in the midst of bitter places and angry places. Lord, as we get a chance to worship and sing, I pray that you would even help us just to scan our own hearts and to look into our own relationships. God, would you search us? And if there's, any, if there's anything inside of us that any action to take or any attitude to adjust, would you, God, would you make us willing? Would you make us willing to hear you? Because you love us and you care about us. And Lord, you, uh, you, you are angry and you hate all that harms us. And that includes sin. And so, Father, I pray that we would just invite you in, that we release anything that we need to release to you in these next moments, God. So give us the wisdom to know the right things to do. Give us the courage to do them. And we ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.